I'm the programmer for Young Readers here at Adelaide. Um, before we start today's session, we acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional owners of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I also have to give you a COVID safety message um, and reinforce some of the key conditions of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing wherever possible and we do strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow the directions given by COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. So thank you for your consideration. We also ask you to support our authors by purchasing books at the book tent. The books from this session um, can be bought from the over at the book tent. There'll also be a book signing at the end of the session. Over. Yeah. Um, I would really like to welcome the wonderful Katrina Nanestead to the stage. Katrina is an award-winning Australian author. Please come on down. Her books include We Are Wolves, The Girl Who Brought Mischief, the Girl, the Dog and the Writer series, the Olive of the Grove series, the Red Dirt Diary series, the Lottie Perkins series <laughs> and Bungalow Creek. For this particular session, Katrina is inspired by historical events in her novels We Are, Novel, uh, we Are Wolves and Rabbit, Soldier, Angel, Thief. She gives us stories where children are the innocent victims of war and ba bravely battle the odds to overcome grand world events. In this session, Katrina's going to talk about the lessons of adversity and the inspiring real stories behind her novels. Thank you, Katrina. Hi, I'm going to try sitting down, but I feel like, a, like I'm at the United Nations or something. I usually stand up, but I haven't got a headset, so we'll see how this goes. If I get too excited, I'll stand up. Um, so these are the books I'm going to talk, to, talk about today. We Are Wolves and Rabbit, Soldier, Angel, Thief, and both are war stories from a child's point of view. Is this, is this sound okay or am I too close? Too close? It's good? Okay. So I, I love war stories. The first stories I ever found truly engaging as a child to read were war stories. Um, and the first book I remember being incredibly excited about as a teenager was a story called Myler 18, set in the Warsaw Ghetto, an uprising that the Jewish people had during World War II. A really tragic story, but I learnt so much and I was so, so wrapped by that story, I went on to read lots more war stories. So can you just give me a show of hand? Who here does actually like reading war stories in particular? Yeah. I wonder if you'd like to tell me what it is you like about war stories. I can't bring the microphone, but I think we're a small enough group that you could put your hand up and shout out if you'd like to tell me what it is you like about war stories. So, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you've, I think you've hit most of the points on the head there. I don't know whether you all heard that. Um, does anyone else want to share what they love about war stories? Anyone else want to just share one thing? I, I really love war stories for all those, all those reasons. I think I learn things always um, from a war story. And I think 
they prompt me to think of the big issues in, in the world. They really think you, uh, make me think more deeply and I think that's a good thing to do. Um, and I think too the fictional characters really bring a story alive. I can read facts about history but I don't find it as meaningful as if they're wrapped in a story or if there's a character taking the journey through those events. I think when we attach a character to a historical event, we actually identify with them and all of a sudden it becomes more personal, which is that last thing that I really love about reading historical fiction and writing historical fiction is that I imagine myself there and I think a good story will always encourage us to put ourselves with the characters in that situation. And I always like to think, would I be a hero or a villain? Would I be um, a coward or would I be brave? Would I be kind or would I be mean? So I, I always hope I'd be the hero. I imagine, <laughs> I always imagine myself that when I'm reading or that I would be kind and brave, but I don't think we really know until we're there in, in that situation. But I think we really um, identify more with a story, with a, a moment in history if it's wrapped in a story. So I'm going to ask you to imagine this, and I'd love it if people would contribute a bit. I think sometimes it's a bit boring if the speaker sits here and talks and everyone just has to listen to me the whole time. If you don't want to share, that's fine, but do share if, you, if you'd like to share along the way. But I would like you just to imagine this for a moment. You're sitting at home on a normal day doing your stuff, whatever it is. Um, except that there's a blizzard outside, so it's not Adelaide, obviously. Normal day, but all of a sudden a soldier bursts through the door and says, oh no, the Red Army has broken through, they are coming, they'll be here at any minute, they're angry, they're mean, they're powerful, you've got to run. So all of a sudden, totally unprepared, you're forced to flee in a blizzard and you have to walk, you haven't got a car, there's no petrol, no cars, you're going to have to walk and flee. So. You don't know how far you'll have to go, you don't know how long you'll be gone, and you don't even know if you're ever going to come home again. You've got 15 minutes to pack. What do you think you would take with you? Have a think about it. 15 minutes to pack, fleeing in a blizzard on foot. Does anyone want to share what they would take with them? Everyone's very cautious and shy. Yeah, what would you take with you? Sorry, I heard the food and the water and books, food, water, books. Have you got a favourite book you're going to take with you? All the books. <laughs> I love that answer. But I'm glad there's sort of a balance between, you know, your heart and also practicality with food and water. Would anyone else like to share what they'd take? Yes. All the chocolate. And that's a really sensible choice because chocolate's high calorie too for food along the way. Yes. Oh, <laughs> okay, so we're going to have a lot of books along the way and up the back there. Money. Money, what a great choice too. And over here. Uh, warm clothes, I think. Yes, warm clothes. So when we have to think of it immediately, there's this strange mix we do, isn't it, of whether we're going to take the practical or the things that really speak to our heart. Uh, but this is what the choices that the East Prussians were faced with towards the end of the war. So East Prussia was the easternmost area of Germany and during the war it remained relatively unscathed. The rest of Germany was being bombed and experiencing food shortages but in East Prussia 
um, people were really a lot better off than in the rest of Germany. And they were told, all of Germans were told, we're winning the war. And so it was easier for them to believe that because they hadn't been so badly affected. Of course, their men had gone off to war and people had tragic loss of the men in their families, but they had enough to eat. And until August 1944, they hadn't been bombed. And then it was just Konigsberg, the capital. But what happened, even when it became apparent that the war was being lost, Hitler did not allow the East Prussian people to flee, even though they were closest to the advancing Red Army. And not only were they not allowed to flee, they were told they were not even allowed to prepare to flee because that was showing that they were losing the war. They had to stand fast and fight to the last man. So when the Red Army finally broke through German lines in January 1945, the East Prussians were totally unprepared for flight. And yet they had to. The Red Army was angry. They were taking revenge on the German people. They were doing incredibly cruel things. So people had to flee. But it was in the middle of a blizzard. It was one of the harshest winters on record. And of course, they had to flee on foot because there weren't any cars, or if there were cars, there was a shortage of petrol. Some lucky people had horses and carriages. Other people were pushing old people in wheelbarrows or pulling children on sleds, but they just had to go. Um, and so in the chaos and the violence that ensued, people died, families got split apart, and thousands and thousands of children were left abandoned or lost or orphaned along the way. And what happened is that these thousands of children ended up having to survive on their own in what had now become a really dangerous, hostile war zone. Um, and these children often escaped to the forest because they wanted to flee the Red Army and hide from the Red Army. There were children hiding in the cities too, trying to get by, but a lot of them went to the forests and they survived by living wild in the forests, eating whenever they could forage or coming out stealing, begging, um, foraging, whatever they could do to get by. And in later years, these children became known as the wolf's kinder or the wolf children because they were living wild like wolves in the forest. So until three years ago, I had never ever heard of the wolf's kinder. I just stumbled across an article about them while I was actually looking for a completely different war story. And I was intrigued. I read the story and then I just, as you do, disappear down the rabbit hole and kept reading links. And as I read these stories about these little children, I was absolutely amazed. I was amazed at their resilience, that they managed to survive sometimes for years after the war, where many adults had not been able to survive. So they survived in conditions that robbed adults of their lives. And the other thing I was astonished at was that I'd never heard these stories before. And that made it um, really exciting for me to learn something new. But I also thought, perhaps if I haven't heard the stories, there are others who haven't heard them. And so I decided I would write a story about the wolf's kinder and maybe introduce them to some people and, and share some, a part of a lesser known part of history. And so my story is about three wolf's kinder, Liesl, who's 11, Otto, who's seven, and Mia, who's only one and a half at the start of their flight. And they get separated from their family in the chaos and they have to survive on their own without any mum, any dad, um, any adults around to help them. So it is a story about survival, but it's a story of determination. And it's also a story about love, a story about Liesl's love for her siblings that helps keep them together and alive and the kindness and love that other people show them along the way that helps them to survive. So I just want us to sort of think about, um, to ponder survival for a moment. So what do we need? What do we need to survive? I'm not talking about to live a full happy life, but what do we actually need to survive? just to live day by day. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes, particularly if there's a blizzard, you need shelter and you need food. And they are the three things that life really got reduced to for the wolf's kinder. Where they were in forests, there were lakes and there were rivers, so water wasn't an issue. Uh, in winter, shelter was an issue. And in my story, we see the wolf's kinder sheltering in an abandoned farm. But the biggest issue of all for people became food. And so the wolf's kinder were really struggling just day by day to get enough to eat to stay alive. So has anyone ever been really hungry? You know, maybe, yeah, <laughs> Jane up the back's been hungry. Maybe if you've been sick and haven't been able to eat or if you've had to have an operation. Um, I wonder how far you would go to get food, though, if you were extremely hungry, desperately hungry. So I want you to consider this, and maybe uh, just so you're thinking a bit more about it, maybe you can give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down whether you think you'd do this to get food. Or if you're not sure, maybe you can give me a sideways thumbs. Do you get that? So yes, I'd do it. No way. Maybe. Do you think if you were really desperate for food, you'd beg? Yeah. Would you go out on the street corners and beg? Would you go door to door and say, listen, have you got an egg? Have you got a slice of salami or something? Yeah, okay. Would you loot? Would you go into an abandoned house and steal food, even knowing that the people might come back one day? Yeah, I've got some very happy looters over here. That's, <laughs> I'm getting a little bit scared, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We've all got different things that really, really don't, don't feel right. Uh, would you raid a farm? Would you go into the chicken coop and steal eggs? Would you maybe steal veggies from a patch or crops from the field? Yeah, that's an, e that's an easy one for most people. Would you do that, though, if you knew that the family really depended on those things for their own survival? Yeah, that becomes a grey area, but nobody's doing a thumbs down. Yeah, yep. Um, would you steal from an occupied house? Maybe wait till the mum went outside to peg the clothes on the line, then dash in and steal some cheese from the larder or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that no judgment here. This is just an, it's, don't take this past the session. Would you eat worms? Would you eat grass? Slugs? Raw fish. Would you rob a bird's nest and take the eggs and eat them? Even if they had like those slimy half-formed birds in it. Yeah, some people have standards, yeah. Would you run through a minefield to get to blackberries on a blackberry bush? Would you steal from Red Army soldiers even if you knew that they might shoot at you? Would you kill a rabbit with your bare hands and eat it? Yeah. Oddly enough, when I've done this with school children, the killing the rabbit with the bare hands is the only thing that many children go down on. No way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So the wolf's kinder did all of these things in order to survive. And we see this in my story where Liesl and Otto and Mia have to do these things just to get by. And along the way, Mia starts to really worry. She's a good German girl and she's really concerned that she's doing these horrible things that a young German girl should never do. Um, and she gets concerned that she's breaking the rules. But she comes to the point where she realises that sometimes to get by, you really do have to break the rules. So we've got good rules in place in society, but war changes things, doesn't it? And sometimes it's okay to put the rules aside or to bend the rules or break the rules. Not day to day, so don't go doing those things in your neighbourhood, will you? But in a wartime. 
So eventually the food really did run out in East Prussia and people realised that there was a little bit more food in neighbouring Lithuania. So people started travelling back and forth to Lithuania for food and the Wolfskinder included did this. And a number of them ended up staying in Lithuania um, where they were either given shelter and food in return for really what was slave labour on farms, which was really tragic that people took advantage of them. But a number of kind Lithuanian families took the Wolfskinder into their families and raised them as their own. So people did show them kindness. But those children who did stay there had to forego their German identity. At that stage, the Soviet Union was in charge in Lithuania as well as East Prussia, and they hated the Germans. And they told the Lithuanian people they were not to help any Germans in, after the war, not even the little orphan German children. So that if the Wolfskinder were going to stay there, they had to forego their German identity for their protection and for the protection of the families that took them in. So I want us just to think about identity at the moment. Think about the things that actually give you your sense of identity. The things that make you really feel like yourself. I wonder if anyone would like to share what really gives them as their sense of identity. What things do you think are important for sense of self? Yeah? What was the last one, Yeah, that's great. Your name, your language, a hobby or something you do. For adults, it's our job often gives us a sense of identity as well. Yeah? Um, your culture and which people or group of people you feel comfortable in really identifying. Yeah, fantastic. Your culture, I don't know whether you heard that, your culture and what group of people you feel like you get on well with or identify with. So all those things are a really important part of our identity. Also our family and our, our friends, which is really what you're saying there. Um, but just imagine how you would feel if you had to give up those things. But this is what the children, the Wolfskinder, had to do when they went to East Prussia, uh, from East Prussia into Lithuania. They actually had to give up their German identity. So their German names had to be changed to Lithuanian names. They had to stop speaking German and speak Lithuanian. Um, they had to stop talking about their past. They had to really abandon their history because talking about that past would give them away as German children. And of course, any mementos that they had, photographs or anything that might give them away as German children had to be hidden or destroyed. And then of course, they had to dress like Lithuanians and basically pretend to be Lithuanian from that point on. This mightn't sound so bad in exchange for survival, of course, and it's an important choice, but it had long-term consequences for these children. So the Wolfskinder, um, some of them, if they're really tiny, you know, they probably learnt the language quickly and were able to go to school, but many of the Wolfskinder could never ever go to school because that would identify them as German if they suddenly turned up as an as a older child at school or if they had an accent. And that meant that a number of the Wolfskinder grew up illiterate. They couldn't learn to read or write, which had lifelong consequences for them with employment and self-esteem and lots of areas of life. The other thing that was a really heart-wrenching thing for these people is that if they changed their identity, if there was any surviving family, any German family left that came looking for them, they wouldn't be able to find them, would they? If they were looking for their daughter, Liesel, who was a German girl, but Liesel now was pretending to be Lucretia, a Lithuanian girl, they would never find her. 
And so people were not reunited with families where they could have been. I read of one story about a brother and sister who'd gone north to Lithuania looking for food, Wolf's Kinder, and they got separated uh, along the way. And the little girl ended up being taken in by a Lithuanian family and grew up as a little Lithuanian girl there. She didn't realise until decades later that her brother had been living in a village just kilometres away the whole time. He had been taken in by a kind Lithuanian family and raised there. But because they'd changed their names and their identity, nobody knew who they were or that they might perhaps be looking for a brother or sister. And so they lost all those years growing up together. And the other thing is that a lot of these people grew up feeling like they were caught between worlds that they were not really German, but they were not really Lithuanian either. And so they had this sense of people not really knowing who they were and, and not even really knowing themselves who they were. So the consequences lived on and on and on for these children. And war is like that. War doesn't stop when the last shot is fired. The consequences of war live on and on. So I just want to um, re recap here before I go on to my other book. Um, so Germany under Hitler started the war. We all know that, don't we? And they did terrible things to the Soviet people when they marched east. But when the Red Army, the Soviet Army, started winning the war and came back into Germany, they did terrible things to take revenge. So I just want to read a passage now from We Are Wolves about that. In this passage, Liesl, Otto and Mia have been caught by Red Army soldiers. Thankfully, they're not so mean to them and their leader, Dimitri, is a really kind man who protects them. But they're walking from one area to another in East Prussia when they come across some other Russian soldiers and a burning village. We keep walking and as we reach the first smouldering ruins, we meet more Russian soldiers. They're warming their hands over a pile of coals that might once have been a hen house or an outhouse or a garden shed. They chat with Dimitri and his men. They scowl at Mia, Otto and me. There must have been a battle, I say to Otto. I suppose the people in this village tried to fight against the Russians. No, says Dimitri, the people in this village ran away before these men arrived. His face clouds over. They have burned the village because they thought it would be fun. I stare at the smouldering remains of houses, shops, a school, and further afield, farms, houses and barns. Why? One of the Russians who has been warming his hands at the coals strides over to Otto, Mia and me. Why not? He replies in German. You Germans have been so rich. You had beautiful houses, larders full of food, barns full of animals, silos full of grain. In Russia we had so little, barely enough to eat, and yet you Germans marched in and took everything. You have done bad things to Russia, just for the fun of it. So now... We are doing bad things to you, just for the fun of it, just because we can. You dirty Germans deserve it. That's not true, I say. The soldier spits at my feet. Dmitri drags the soldier away, shouting at him in Russian. Otto stares at me. We didn't do bad things to Russia, he whispers. We were at school, learning our times tables. I nod, but I don't say anything because now I'm wondering... Have the Germans done the same thing as these horrible Russians are doing? Otto tugs at my hand. I did kick a cat one time, he confesses. His name was Ivan. Ivan is a Russian name, isn't it, Liesl? 
His voice wobbles. I kicked a Russian cat. I shouldn't have done it, but he was teasing a poor little mouse and I wanted him to let it go. I want to tell the angry soldier that Germans are good people and that Hitler is a kind and loving leader. We are not like the horrible, nasty Russians. We are not. I hate beetroot soup, Otto continues, now clutching his face with both hands. Beetroot soup is Russian, isn't it, Liesl? Maybe the soldier means I've been a bad boy because I said rude things about Russian food, about his food. Are the Russians, are the Germans like the Russians? My eyes fill with tears. I'm sorry, Liesl, whimpers Otto. Please don't cry. I promise I'll be a good boy from now on. I will never kick a Russian cat again and I'll only say good things about Russian food. I won't even kick the Russian soldiers in the shins. I promise, Liesl. I'll be good. I'll be really good. Just don't cry. But I can't help it. My eyes overflow and tears stream down my face because now I'm truly worried. Are the Germans worse than the Russians? So we've got the Germans doing bad things to the Russians, the Russians taking revenge, doing bad things to the Germans, which sort of make, makes me start to wonder, who, who were the baddies then in this war? Who do you think were the bad guys in this war? Yeah, what a great answer. Let's give her a clap. That's the core of the issue, isn't it? You know, war is not a simple case of baddies and goodies, of winners and losers. You know, the, the leaders might be the, the people who do despicable things and start the war and initiate these terrible responses to war, but there are good people on, every, on both sides of every conflict. And there are people who do bad things on both sides of every conflict. And you know, in the end, it doesn't matter if there is a declared winner in a war. In the end, everyone loses when there's a war, don't they? And we see that in this story, werewolves. There, there are good people on both sides and really everyone loses in the end. So after writing Werewolves, I thought it would be quite exciting to explore the war story from the other side, from a different point of view. And so I wrote this story, Rabbit, Soldier, Angel, Thief. Has anyone read this book? Yeah. Um, so I, while I was researching for werewolves, I came across a story about a little boy called Sergei Leshkov, who's reportedly the youngest soldier to have served in World War II. And they were not quite sure how old he was because he didn't have birth certificates and stuff, but they think he was somewhere between six and eight years of old years of age when he joined the Red Army. So um, Sergei lived in a, a village in the middle of a forest in Russia and his mother and his brother were supporting the Russian partisans. So the Nazis came in and they sadly killed his mother and brother. But a kind neighbour acted quickly and threw him out the window and he escaped and survived. He went into the forest where he survived. The accounts vary a little bit but from a few weeks to a few months, um, where he was barely surviving when Red Army Scouts found him. And they took him back to their unit and they adopted him into their unit. And in fact, the major of that unit ended up officially adopting him as his son. And he went along with that army unit for the duration of the war and lived through the war. 
So how do we feel about child soldiers? Yeah, yeah we've, got, we've got the, the thumbs down, yeah. Um, did you want to share how you feel about what you think about child soldiers? Big loud voice, can you? No, no. And you make a really great point there, nobody should, not even adults, should they? But a child, a child should be playing and going to school, shouldn't they? Um, it's, it's an absolutely horrific thing to even begin to comprehend, but we know that there are child soldiers at any point in time around the world, not by their own choice, but because circumstances that are so wrong and so muddled have led that them to that in their lives. And, you know, Sergei was not the only child soldier during World War II. As I read on about the, the Red Army, I discovered that there were more children like him. There were, the trouble was that in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union in general, when the um, when the German army came in, they absolutely decimated the cities and the villages and the land. And so there were many, many millions of civilians killed. And there were other people who were taken from Russia and back to Germany as slave labour. And as a result of the violence and the kidnappings and everything that went on, there were many, many children who were left orphaned or lost and alone in a war-torn zone trying to survive on their own. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's very much what happened to these children, to the Wolfskinder in Germany at the end of the war. And a number of these children who were trying to survive on their own found their way to the Red Army or the Red Army found them. And sometimes they were sent to orphanages, but this was a war zone and there often weren't orphanages. There wasn't actually the time to go back and take these children to a safe place. So sometimes these children were just taken along for the ride with the army. They were sewn tiny uniforms and they were given duties in the army as little soldiers. They ran messages, they delivered mail, they took water to the soldiers or ammunition to the soldiers. Um, they helped the wounded and some really tragically, were given weapons and fought as well. Now, taking a child into the army is just... It sounds wicked, doesn't it? It just sounds so wrong. But war is wicked, isn't it? And war just upsets the normal balance of things so that the normal order just no longer applies. And the reality is, as sad and as horrid as this might sound, the reality is that it was perhaps better for some of these little children to be taken along with the army because they actually had food sometimes and they had clothes and they had adults to take care of them, which would be much easier in some cases than surviving on their own in a war zone, as in fact the Wolfskinder had to do and many, many millions of children around the world during war have to do. So don't get me wrong, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there's anything good or anything moral about child soldiers. I'm just making the point that the rules change during war. We might have some competition for noise in a minute. <laughs> um, yeah. So after reading Sergei's story, I was really inspired to write my story about a little child soldier. And when I read Sergei's story, all of the accounts talked about how kind and sweet and brave this little boy was and how he cheered his fellow soldiers with his singing and his poetry and his funny little stories. And I thought that was a great premise for a story that even though there was this horrific situation of war in Russia and a child going, being taken into the army, that perhaps that child could somehow create a, a difference for the people that he mixed with. And so I created my little Sasha, a six-year-old Russian boy 
And at the start of the story, we see what his life should be, what a child's life should be. He's in his village with his mama and his sister, Elena. He plays with his lovely little twin friends, Nina and Olga. They collect the eggs, they climb trees. At the end of the day, he goes out into the meadows and greets the mums and the big boys as they come back from harvest and sings with them as they walk home. He has bedtime stories and he snuggles up to his sister at night. So he's living what's a really normal, healthy child's life. But then the German army arrive and they destroy his village. They burn it to the ground and everyone is lost except for Sasha. And he flees and finds the Red Army and is taken into that unit where he serves throughout the war. He goes to Stalingrad, which is the biggest battle of World War II, and he makes it all the way to Berlin where victory is declared. So it's one, one little boy I've written a story about, but I wanted to see if I could write a story where this child made a difference. Can one person make a difference? I wonder if you could think of anyone you know who, through their kindness, has made a difference. It might be a famous person. Is there someone who's been kind to you that has made a difference? It might be one little kindness that has turned a bad moment into a good moment. It might be a big kindness that's changed your life or someone else's life. Can anyone think of an example of kindness, small or large, that's changed? Yeah. 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 And that's life-changing kindness, isn't it, for for your husband and for you? That's big, big kindness acted out in in small ways, but it's very meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone... Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's a really, really beautiful case of kindness. Does anyone else want to share a kindness they can think of? As I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about a small act of kindness that made a huge difference in my life. I remember when I was in Year 9, I changed schools. And I remember my first day... Has anyone here changed schools? Anyone changed schools during high school? <laughs> it's scary, I can tell you. And I was going into Year 9, which, which was really scary. And I remember turning up late on the first day because we'd had to go to the principal's office to enrol and everything. And I walked into the room and everyone in my class stared at me. And I just remember feeling like I wanted the floor to open up and swallow me up. And one of the girls in my class just stood up and she got a bench. It was the science lab, got a bench seat from another table pulled it back to her and said, come and sit here. Such an act of kindness that absolutely changed a devastatingly stressful moment into a really happy moment. And that girl became one of my best friends. <laughs> so that's just one small kindness that made a huge difference in my life. So small kindnesses actually make a huge change. And we see this in Sasha's story. He's just a little boy who's grown up learning to be kind because his mum's been kind to him, his sister's been kind to him, his village has been a kind place, and so he's learnt that that's the way we behave. Nothing dramatic in that. He's just learnt how to be kind because kindness is really contagious, isn't it? We learn kindness from other people. And in the army, we see, though, that this... Kindness, this simple kindness of a little boy really changes lives. 
He brings hope and comfort and light, even in really dark moments during the war, where there's been a battle and a lot of comrades have been lost, or where the soldiers are exhausted, or where they're terrified, or where they're just so lonely because they're so far from home. Often these soldiers did not see their families for years and years during the war. So he's one boy committing small acts of kindness over and over again. So I just want to read this little scene from the story, uh, which is where Sasha's been waiting back at the camp with Cook while the soldiers have been away in a battle and they come back at the end of the day. When the soldiers return that evening, I dash around offering them sips of water from a canteen. I roll cigarettes and poke them between dry, quivering lips. I pull dusty boots off swollen feet and make the soldiers laugh when I screw up my nose at the smell of their foot wraps. I fetch supper and cups of tea for the men who are too tired to walk the few steps to cook and his cauldrons and kettles. I even spoon Karsha into the mouth of one, poking him awake between chews. I follow Natasha from one wounded comrade to the next. I pass bandages, scissors, slings, splints, needles and thread to her. I hold each soldier's hand as he is treated and tell him to be a big, brave boy and kiss him on the forehead when he's done. All except for private Titania Petrova. I tell her to be a big, brave girl and when her shoulder has been patched up, she kisses me on the forehead. It's even better than a salute. The soldier with the broken arm is brought back to camp on a stretcher. He now has a broken leg too. He whispers, my three best friends were lost today. I'm only six, but I know that a broken heart is much worse than a broken leg. So I sit at his side, stroke his head and sing him a song, my favourite about the little birch tree. As I sing, some of the soldiers around me join in. I eat supper with Major Scruff and when he walks around the camp telling the other soldiers how well they have fought today, I run around hugging them and shouting, thank you for serving Mother Russia, Mother Russia so bravely. Some laugh, some roll their eyes, but most return my hugs and some squeeze me so hard that I lose my breath. And I think the Red Army must not give enough hugs to its soldiers. So Sasha's kindness actually becomes famous in this story uh, when, he's, when he's met by a Red Star journalist. Red Star was the newspaper that the Red Army put out for their soldiers, filled with propaganda and ridiculous stories and that, but it was um, their newspaper. And he meets a journalist who um, sees him committing these acts of kindness over and over again and talks about how he, can, he cheers his fellow soldiers. And he writes an article where he calls him the Angel of Stalingrad. And so Sasha's kindness actually becomes famous. And that's where the title in the story Angel comes from. Rabbit, when he's a little rabbit's his mother's nickname, then he's a soldier, and then he's known as the Angel of Stalingrad. So we might not be able to become famous for our kindnesses, but we can be kind, can't we? Um, one small person can do one small act of kindness, like my friend in high school. And one small person might be able to do lots of small acts of kindness, mightn't they? And we need not to underestimate how one little act of kindness can change lives or lots of acts of kindness can be, be totally life-changing. I just want to finish um, before we open up to questions with a story, a real story about Lydia, who was a Russian child victim of war. Um, because I write stories, 
people often share stories with me and they're really generous with the stories they sell, um, tell me. It's a privilege, it's a real privilege of being a writer that people will share stories. And I think often people will read one of my stories and they make a connection with something in it, which is what we do as readers all the time, don't we? We read a book and we make connections with it. Think of something in our own life. When We Are Wolves first came out, soon after it came out, I had a lovely email from a lady called Merrin. She lives in a retirement village in Western Australia and she'd read my story. And she wrote to me and said she'd really enjoyed my book. She, she'd really found it moving. And she said it made her think of a friend of hers, Lydia, who used to live beside her at the retirement village. And she said Lydia was a Russian victim of war. She was a Russian girl um, at the start of the war and she was one of these children who were kidnapped by the Germans and sent back to Germany as slave labour. There were hundreds of thousands of children who were stolen by the Germans from those eastern nations, sent back to Germany for the duration of the war, where they worked in factories or on farms or in houses. And this was the case with Lydia. At the end of the war... Um, many of those children were returned to the east, but Lydia migrated to Australia, where she lived a full and happy life and ended up as Merrin's friend in the retirement village. But Merrin was telling me about Lydia and said, I think it would be really great if you could write a story from the other side of things, from the wolf's kinder, write about a Russian child, maybe a child like Lydia who's been stolen from her home. And as it turned out, just a few days before, I'd handed in my manuscript to Rabbit Soldier, Angel Thief. And in this book, there's a story about a little Russian girl called Lizabeta, who is stolen from her family and is sent to Germany to work as a slave on a farm for the duration of the, of the war. So I told Merrin this, and I promised I would send her the book when it came out. So last year, when it came out, I sent the book to Merrin, and she sent me back a beautiful card, and she sent me this. This has been made by Lydia, that Russian girl who uh, was a child slave to Germany. And when Lydia died, Merrin inherited some of her artworks. And she sent this to me and she said, I think you should own this now because there's a connection between you and Lydia. And that was so precious to me because I, I've never been in a war. I've never been to Russia. And yet my story has created this connection between me and a little girl who lived many years ago in Russia. It's such a precious thing, isn't it? Stories uh, create connections, don't they? Stories connect people uh, to fictional characters but also to real characters. And I think that's the real power of stories and particularly war stories is that they show us what we share. It's so easy to think of the things that are different between us and to be scared of differences uh, between us and other people. But I think story can really show us how much we actually share. And even if there are things that are different, that we can still have a connection. So this is my connection with, uh, <laughs> with Lydia, which I find really precious. Um, yeah. So I think I just about have to wind up. I've got five minutes. If anyone would like to ask a question, you're welcome to ask a question now. Would anyone like to ask a question? Yes. How did you become a writer? Oh, yeah, that's always a little bit of a tricky thing to pinpoint a moment, or not for all writers, but for me it is. You see, as a child, I didn't really like reading and books, and I know that's an absolutely horrific thing for people to hear a writer say, <laughs> but I grew up in the 70s where I was shown really, really boring books, and I'm sorry to all the fans of Enid Blyton, but I hated Enid Blyton. <laughs> 
And I think that was... Uh, Enid Blyton was about it, I think, for me. And nobody ever showed me the right books. I did love Clifford the Big Red Dog, but I generally liked reading comics because they were fun and they were bright. And I thank goodness for comics. I might never have learned to read and write if comics didn't exist. Um, it was actually a teacher in year 11 and 12 at school who really inspired me. I'd always been more a science math student and I thought that might be the path I would pursue. But in year 11 and 12, I had a passionate English teacher. Has anyone ever had a teacher who changed their life? Yeah, and she was just, she was so passionate about literature, about poems and plays and reading and writing and individual words that I caught her passion and I went on to university to study literature. I did become a school teacher, but my favourite time of every day was when I'd sit down with my class and read a book. I just loved the magic that together we could dive into a created world and escape into that. And then when I had my children, I just loved, my favourite time of every day was when we'd read a picture book and escape together. And that was the time where I sort of thought it might be fun to start creating, trying to create something, some of that magic for myself. And that's when I really started um, getting serious about writing. Yeah. Thank you. Does anyone else have a question? Yeah? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, oh, Tobias is really me. In the, we're just talking about the Girl, the Dog, and the Writer series, which is a comedy, comical sort of series, but it's travel and it's, there's a mystery in each book. And the, one of the key characters is a writer called Tobias Appleby, and he's incredibly absent-minded. You know, he'll he'll stumble uh, across fields talking to himself and having imaginary conversations with his characters, and he's always commenting out loud on people's appearance if he thinks it might be interesting for a character in a book. And he does embarrassing things all the time. So he's, he's great at writing, but he's really awkward in real-life situations. Um, Tobias Appleby's really me. <laughs> I think I just got to the point where I thought it would be fun to write a story with a writer at the centre and, um, yeah, because I, I would find that an easy character to create. Um, so I've probably put a bit... stretched it a bit. I'm not quite as bad as Tobias, I don't think. Yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> Does anyone else, Janine? Did um, in both of your war books, you've got incredible amount of fascinating, brilliant detail, and I just wondered about the research. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of <laughs> research for both books. The the hard part was that for both of these stories, why the reason that made them interesting to tell was that they were perhaps a bit lesser known than other war stories. And so when I started searching, there wasn't a huge amount of information specifically about the Wolf's Kinder. So I really had to glean through, you know, a lot of websites and even blog posts that were being put up even now about the Wolf's Kinder and um, newspaper articles and that. I also was able to get a really, uh, two really great autobiographies that were self-published. There was nothing, there was no fiction that I could find about the Wolf's Kinder even. There was nothing research-wise other than maybe a line in a history book. Um, but I found two great um, self-published books. One was written by a woman who was a wolf's kinder and who lived on her own and survived for a number of years after the war, who was finally reunited with her family. The other was just a child refugee from East Prussia. She was with her family, but that was really valuable. 
But otherwise, I found like documentaries on um, you know what happened in the end of East Prussia. There were snippets, little videos of people who'd been lost and abandoned, and that little wolf's kinder snippets. But it was always just in snippets that I had to wade through heaps of information. So by the time I'd really exhausted all the Wolfskinder information. Then I started researching about East Prussia, which was easier. There were history books about that and um, about what happened after the war with the Red Army, what happened before the end of the war in, in Russia and why the Red Army was so cruel, all those things. So I sort of had to build it up bit by bit like a puzzle. And it was a bit the same with this one, Rabbit Soldier, Angel, Thief. I originally thought it'd be great to write the real story of Sergei um, the real child soldier. But when I started looking, although there were maybe five or six things online about it, I think they all went back to the one source. So then I had to start researching a lot about um, child soldiers and child victims of war. One thing that was absolutely invaluable, and I, I hesitate to show this when there are children here, it's, it is not a children's book. Please don't go and share this with your children or give this to your children. Um, this woman, Svetlana Alexievich, is, is an historian and she's recorded people's words in Ukraine and Belarus and Russia about the war. So there's this book, Last Witnesses, is about ch um, child victims of war in that area. And so there were amazing stories here, including children who were taken into the Red Army, just a few of that, but they were just so powerful because they were the people telling their stories about when they were children. And so writing from a child's point of view, that really brought the story alive. And the other one of hers that I used was a book called The Womanly Face of War because in World War II, I don't know whether you, you know, I didn't know how many women had served. About a million women served with the Red Army. And not, not just as nurses they or radio operators, they served as foot soldiers and snipers and pilots and they did the whole, whole works in the war. So that was really great for me writing with, about some female soldiers too in the story. And otherwise, I did standard things like um, Anthony Beaver. I don't know, has anyone read Anthony Beaver's historic works? I read Stalingrad and, you know, the typical history things. But for both these stories, it really was a bit like being a detective because, you know, a rare story is really interesting to write, but the reason it probably isn't written about so much is because there's not that much information about it. So then you build it up. It's like getting all the jigsaw pieces or, you know, bits of the puzzle that you fill in. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think we might be out of time, but thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the people who were brave enough to share. <laughs> that was so wonderful. Thank you very much, Katrina. And Katrina will be signing books over here, so if anybody has their books or would like to go and buy um, one of Katrina's books in the book tent, please do so, and then um, she will be signing here. But it was a wonderful... Um, presentation. So thank, thank you, you so much.